Your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain, firm beneath my feet. Your love is a mystery, how you gently lift me when I am surrounded. Your love carries me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Your love makes me Well, hello again, and welcome to part five of our study through the book of Philippians. Philippians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians who lived in the city of Philippi. When he wrote the letter, Paul was about 5,000 miles away in Rome. As you probably remember, uh, if you've watched the other installments in this series, Paul was under house arrest and he was waiting to be seen by the emperor. While he was there, uh, Paul had received a gift from the church at Philippi, and he wrote this letter to uh, not only thank them for the gift, but to generally encourage them uh, and to let them know he was doing all right under the circumstances. You see, even though Paul was in prison, he was still sharing the gospel with anyone that would listen. He wanted his friends to know that, that God was at work uh, during his time of lockdown and, and that God was continuing to work in their lives as well. Before we begin, though, uh, let me pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of getting to know you more. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us today. We pray against the distractions of the world and that our focus be completely on you. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, uh, we completed uh, chapter 1 last week, so today we're going to be starting in chapter 2, and our passage is going to be from chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So, if you have your Bibles open, let's turn to Philippians 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, ha having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When I was doing my research and studying for this message, I noticed something that I want to share with you now. A couple of weeks ago, I had mentioned how difficult it must have been for the translators who were working with the original, uh, with the original manuscripts 
because in their original form, they were all capital letters uh, and there were no breaks between words and there was very little punctuation. And I, I talked about how over the years, text, uh, various translations have been further clarified with the addition of chapter headings and, and subheadings. And I mentioned this uh, because of a situation that I encountered with this week's text. You see, when I read the text, I clearly see it in two very distinct sections. Uh, verse 1 to 4, and then there's a transition sentence uh, in verse 5, a transition statement, rather. And then another section from verses 6 to 11. And my primary uh, version of the Bible that I use is the English Standard Version, or the, the ESV. And in, in the ESV, the chapter heading for verses 1 to 11 is Christ's example of humility. And, and that's a perfectly good description uh, for the second half of the text anyway. Uh, what about verses 1 to 4? So that got me into research mode. And I, I did a search to see how some of the other translations handled this issue. I looked at the RSV, the NRSV, the NIV, the ASV, the NASV, and the Amplified Bible. But it wasn't until I got to a translation called the MEB, or the Modern English Bible, that I found a heading that, that reflected what I had noticed and that I felt most accurately described the structure of this text. The MEB uses Christian humility and Christ's humility. Two sections, two descriptions, and exactly how I intend to present this morning's lesson. Paul begins in verse 1 by reminding his friends to, to recognize that all of the good things in their lives all of the good things in their lives are because of Christ. The encouragement that they feel, the, the comfort and the love of the Spirit of Christ has provided them, not just for their, their own personal benefit, but for the benefit of others. Paul exhorts them to share the good stuff with each other, to show one another the love of Christ in exactly the same way that it's been shown to them. By encouraging and loving and, and comforting one another, they will be drawn closer together and closer to Christ. In verse 2, uh, Paul tells them that even though he's happy, he could be happier. His joy uh, would be made complete if, if, he could, if he could know without any question that they were all sharing in Christ's love, individually and collectively that they were living in harmony with one another and they were and you, that they were united behind a common purpose the advance of the gospel in essence paul is letting them know that they are all on the same team and, and that nothing would make him any happier than to act like it and he then gives them a couple examples of what that looks like in in verse 3 paul instructs them on proper motivation he warns against doing anything out of ambition or conceit. See, these two motives are, are rooted in pride. And pride is the mortal enemy of a proper Christian attitude. Pride takes the focus off of the Lord where it should be, and it places it on the individual. Pride places the focus on the individual. That little shift of focus from the worthy to the unworthy can be deadly. 
It's no wonder that the dangers of pride are addressed so often in Scripture. In fact, the sin of pride is the first recorded sin of the Bible. Now, I think most of us would automatically think about Adam and Eve in the garden. But there's actually an earlier event that is referenced in both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I'm referring, of course, to to Satan's prideful behavior that led to his banishment from heaven and his eternal separation from the Father. Pride has no place in the kingdom. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, drunkenness, and all of that They are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Strong words from Mr. Lewis on on the, the destructive nature of pride. Paul then instructs his friends to act in humility and to count others more significant than themselves. This would have created quite a stir at the time because humility was not counted as a virtue in the pagan culture. It was not counted as a virtue. In fact, the word translated as humility literally meant lowness of mind and and was often used as a synonym for mean-spirited among the Greek-speaking population. Isn't that amazing, though, how how the redemptive power of the gospel is able to transform anything, even the meanings of the very words that we speak? To take what was basically a, a pejorative term and rebrand it as a desirable personality trait. Can you imagine, though, the the surprise maybe and the the disbelief when non-believers overheard that word being used by the Christians, not knowing that it had a a new definition? I wonder if some of them were maybe a little frightened to to hear about a new religion that encouraged its followers to be mean-spirited. Well, that wasn't the only culture-shifting bomb that Paul drops. He has the audacity to suggest that we regard others as more important than ourselves. Say what? To the Romans, this would have been anathema. They thrived in a, in a slave-driven, every-man-for-himself culture, uh, a culture that was founded on the exact opposite of that premise. All men were not created equal, and it was the sworn duty of the Romans to spread the truth of that message to the rest of the known world. It didn't matter what you believed in or how cool you thought you were before the Romans showed up. What did matter, though, was that when they left, well, if you were still alive, you had a firm grasp of Roman superiority. Personal ambition uh, within the political realm of Rome was a deadly business. In 133 BC, uh, Rome experienced its first political murder. And from then on, things just got worse. Uh, By 44 BC, they were murdering the emperor himself. Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC by political rivals. 
looking out for anyone other than number one would have been laughable to the Romans. They probably thought that that Paul was crazy to even suggest that anyone would think about the interests of others, let alone actually care. But that is precisely what the apostle, uh, excuse me, that is precisely what the apostle encourages his friends to do in verse four. The believers are to look out for themselves, but they are also being commanded to look out for one another. In Paul's way of thinking, uh, which we should note is a correct spirit-led way of thinking, in Paul's way of thinking, this is the mindset that they all need to have. It is a natural product of living their lives in Christ. Over the first four verses, Paul has been instructing his friends on how to live in response to their acceptance of the gospel how to show the world and each other that their lives have been changed. In verse 5, after confirming that their behavior is a reflection of the mind of Christ, Paul transitions to the why. Why it's so important that they remain faithful to the gospel. Why humility should be considered a virtue. Why obedience is absolutely necessary why love and and gratitude are natural responses, and why Jesus Christ is worthy of their worship. In verse 6, Paul begins uh, what is known as the high Christology. Uh, A Christology is a study of Christ. A high Christology is a study of Christ that emphasizes his divine nature. Christ as the Son of God. Though there are a few Christologies elsewhere in Scripture, uh, for example, the preamble to John's Gospel and the one that appears in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the example that Paul uses here has prompted debate among some scholars. Uh, It's a widespread belief that the Christology that Paul uses was actually an early Christian hymn that Paul borrowed and inserted into his letter. You see, the the reasoning behind it is that the structure of the verses in the original language have a very distinct rhythmic prose that's not found anywhere else in this letter. But whether or not Paul actually wrote it, that isn't really of that much significance. What is important, though, is that it's absolutely true and that it reinforces the spirit of humility that Paul is seeking to cultivate in the hearts of his friends. Now, depending on the the translation that you're using, uh, you may have something different from what I have used for the lesson. The ESV uses the phrase, though he was in the form of God. But personally, (laughs) I like the way that the NIV renders it. The NIV has being in the very nature God. Being in the very nature God. I think I like it because it just appeals to my Trinitarian roots. But the point here is that Jesus is God with with all of the rights and privileges befitting his stature. It is beyond human comprehension that anyone would, would willingly step down from such an exalted position. 
I mean, seriously, uh, most people have a hard time accepting that Prince Harry stepped away from the royal family, and, and he was only sixth in line to the throne. Can you imagine stepping down, stepping away from being the God of the universe? Jesus had every right to, to remain exactly where he was and exactly what he was. But he, he didn't use his equality with God as an excuse for self-assertion or self-aggrandizement. Instead, as we read in verse 7, he emptied himself and, and he took the form of a servant. A servant, the most powerful being in the universe, allowed himself to become powerless and, and to be born as a helpless infant. Growing up as the beloved son of his earthly parents, Jesus experienced life the same way as you or me. He knew what, what it felt like to be, to be hungry, to be tired, to be happy, to be heartbroken. He faced the temptations of this world, sometimes delivered to him right from the devil himself. Yet he never sinned. He always remained faithful to the will of his heavenly father right up to the night that he was betrayed by a friend. Arrested and, and led away by the men who had no idea of the power that was present in the body of their prisoner. Power that Jesus could have used at any time to avoid what was going to happen at Calvary. With a whisper, he, he could have summoned an army of angels to surround his enemies. In the wink of an eye, he could have transported himself to a boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But he did none of these things. Even though he had every right to do so and the power to carry it out, he didn't fight. Instead, like a lamb to the slaughter, he obediently went to his death on the cross. A cross. Crucifixion was considered the most vile and disgusting way to die, reserved for the, the very lowest form of criminal. The word cross, it was considered an obscenity, and in polite conversation, they didn't even mention the word. In fact, in a Roman court, if a prisoner was sentenced to crucifixion, they would use a pseudonym in court to avoid using the word cross. And it wasn't just the Romans who, who considered the, the cross such a horrible and disgusting manner of death. Under Jewish law, if a person were crucified, they would die under a curse from God. Listen to Paul as he quotes from Deuteronomy in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Crucifixion was both cruel and unusual. And, and we really don't have a, a modern point of reference. In our society, there has been and still is a, a trend toward the sanitizing and the humanizing of capital punishment. Public hangings and, and the guillotine were the most recent example of anything even close to the humiliating spectacle of crucifixion. And even then, they pale in comparison to the horrors of the cross. And yet, the sinless Savior 
willingly embraced that process. And that, my friends, is the measuring rod that Paul offers to his people. The most incredible demonstration of of humility and obedience that the world will ever witness. Paul needs for them to understand why, to understand why humility is so very, very important. If Jesus had rejected humility and refused to, to participate in God's plan, their faith would be meaningless and they would all remain dead in their sin. The choice that Jesus made at Calvary to choose the will of his Father over his own is at the very heart of what gives them life in this world and in the world to come. Christ had been willing to literally die on their behalf. How then would they be able to justify figuratively dying? Dying to themselves in order to serve their their brothers and sisters. Well, the answer is obvious, but, but it isn't always the first course of action. You see, unless we are truly convinced that that God is in control and that he will always provide for us, our hearts can become stingy. We will be so concerned over our own welfare that we will play it safe. We will play it safe with our money, with our possessions, with our time, and with our love. Be humble, Paul is telling them. Because this world and all of its trappings are nothing compared to what God has in store for you. To illustrate that point, Paul, in verse 8, he lets them know how God reacted to the death of his son. Even though Jesus had died a a disgraceful death, a, a death that was literally unspeakable, God does something absolutely amazing. Something that I can guarantee that no one saw coming. He exalts Jesus to the highest place. He makes Jesus the name that is above all other names, even his own. God establishes Jesus as the name by which all men are saved. Anyone, even though they they may believe in God and in the Holy Spirit, must call upon the name of Jesus in order to be granted salvation. And it will not just be the believers who will recognize the authority of Jesus. There will come a day when people of every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow before Jesus Christ. They will bow before him and they will confess that he is Lord of all. God will take care of you, Paul is telling his friends. God will take care of you. Look at the example of Christ and and do your best to imitate him. Humility is a virtue, despite what the world would have you believe. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to, to count people more significant than yourself. That is exactly how Christ lived. And if you can do the same, you bring honor to the name of Jesus and you will glorify your Father in heaven. Pride has no place in the kingdom. If sin were a tree, okay, if sin were a tree, pride would be the trunk. It would be the trunk whose roots go go down deep into our soul, deep into our soul where they, they find all kinds of nourishment. 
nourishment in the form of fears and doubts and our own fragile egos. Pride places ourselves at the center of the universe and makes it impossible for us to consider the needs of others as being more important than our own. Although it may not be reviled as it was back in Roman times, humility is is still not given as much attention as it should in today's world. Sometimes pride is not the obvious place that we go to uh, when we experience the negative effects. Here's just a couple examples uh, to illustrate what I'm getting at. How many of you have had to wait for cars to clear an intersection after the light has turned green? Specifically, the, the left turn off of Cottle Road into the Kaiser Hospital parking lot. How many of you have had to wait because people obviously felt they had the right to make their turn? Obviously, they felt that they had been waiting long enough and their time was more valuable than anyone else's. That's pride. Or how about when you're in a parking lot and you find the perfect spot and you're ready to turn in and you can't? You can't turn in because somebody has left their shopping cart in the spot instead of taking it back to the cart return area. Do you think even for one moment that the person that left it there was considering the needs of others? I don't think so. That's pride. (laughs) And then we've all we've all seen the destruction that has been brought about in our cities as a result of the rioting and the not so peaceful protests. The damage inflicted upon small businesses is is a physical evidence, physical evidence of a mindset that that is saying, my feelings are more important than your ability to make a living. That's pride. And finally, I, I don't even have to elaborate on this other than to say toilet paper and Clorox wipes. I think we all get the picture here. So what do we do? What do we do? How can we remain part of the solution and not part of the problem? What are some steps that that we can take in order to ensure that our lives reflect the mind of Christ? That we're not just living for ourselves, but living for others. Well, pride will manifest itself in a number of ways. But, But today, I would like to take a look at three areas where pride can interfere with our spiritual growth and prevent us from living in a Christ-like manner. We will begin by asking ourselves three questions. Number one, whose sin are we focusing on? Whose sin are we focusing on? Number two, what is the focus of our joy, security, and contentment? What is the focus of our joy, security, and contentment? And lastly, what is the focus of our service? When we are in bondage to our own pride, the answers to these three questions are are usually going to look something like this. Our pride will cause us to focus on the sins of other people while ignoring our own. Prideful attitudes will cause us to minimize our bad habits and behaviors. Well, all the while, we'll clamor and complain about how badly other people are acting. 
We are all familiar with the parable about removing the log from our own eye before we say anything about that speck of dust that might be in our neighbor's eye. A person who is walking in humility recognizes that they only need to be concerned about their own walk with Jesus. They'll have the understanding that that maintaining a Christ-like way of life is a full-time occupation that, that doesn't really allow for extracurricular criticism of their fellow man. It's not our place to judge another man's servant. Every one of us is equal in the eyes of the Lord, but pride will make us believe that some of us are more equaler than others. That we are somehow superior and therefore have the moral obligation to correct others. This is a false premise, people. And it leads to some very, very unpleasant realities. Uh, Realities like having people be afraid to confide in us out of fear of, of judgment. Realities like losing friends because they can't handle that self-righteous attitude anymore. Realities that reinforce the belief that Christians are hypocrites. The vast majority of people do not want their, their behavior critiqued, especially if that critique comes from a source that they believe lacks integrity. Now, this is not to say that that we have not been called to help our brothers and sisters in their walk with the Lord. We absolutely are. But there is a proper motivation and a method for offering rebuke and correction. And it most certainly is never, ever accompanied by a prideful attitude. Our second question concerns the source of our joy. Where are we finding joy, security, and contentment? To what do we look for those three things? Pride will lead us to believe that that we are the source of these things and and that it's up to us to, to make sure that we have plenty of whatever it is that we need to make ourselves feel significant. Maybe it's a lot of money or power. Maybe it's a a big house, a new boat, or or a different date every night. Whatever form that it take that it takes, it's unhealthy. And it's harmful. Our significance is found in Christ. He is more than than able to provide us with everything that we need to be joyful, secure, and content. However, that will only happen when we humble ourselves before him. We have to remove ourselves from the throne and put Jesus back where he belongs. When we are satisfied in Christ, we no longer have anything to prove to the world. We have nothing to prove to anyone. We don't have to constantly chase the latest and the greatest to impress people who, if truth told, they weren't really paying that much attention to us anyway. Uh, most of the time, other people are so caught up in their own struggle to be noticed that we are barely more than a blip on their radar. And lastly, we need, we need to look at the focus of our service. What we do in the name of Jesus needs to involve more than just us and Jesus. The body of Christ needs everyone to participate. It needs everyone to participate in order to remain healthy and to thrive. Our tithes and and offerings are a good thing, but please don't misunderstand me on on this point. Our Our tithes and offerings are a good thing. 
But God demands and deserves a more precious commodity. God demands our time. Our time spent in service to one another. I, I know it's not easy with, with busy schedules and responsibilities and, and all the other stuff that we might be dealing with right now. But we have to try. We have to try and do the best that we can. As we mentioned earlier, our strength comes from our unity. Our unity in Christ. The temptation to isolate after a busy day or a busy week, it's a strong one. Believe me, I, I, I totally get it. Yeah, you just want to kick back on the couch, put something on the TV, and, and just relax for a while. That's all you want to do. But there does have to be some balance here. Each and every one of us has been called to minister to one another, to place the needs of our brothers and sisters above our own. How many of you uh, this morning have heard the term 80-20 rule? The 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule describes the fact that in the average church, 80% of the ministry duties are being performed by 20% of the congregation. What that indicates to me, anyway, is that there are far too many people coming to church looking to be served rather than to serve. I'm happy to say that here at Blossom Valley Bible Church, uh, we're a lot better than average. You know, we have a, a, a group of very dedicated people who have servant hearts, and they've been willing to do whatever it takes to keep our church thriving. But we can do better, people. We, I know that we can do better. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Everyone gets to play, and everyone needs to play. Everyone needs to play. The day is coming when we will uh, we'll be meeting again on Sundays, and we're going to need everyone's help. So I'm going to ask you now to, to start praying. Start praying right now. Well, maybe not at this moment, but <laughs> how about after the message? Start praying today. Pray to the Lord to have him reveal to you, and have him reveal to you where you might be of service once we start meeting again. If I... If I'm coming across a little bit strongly on, on this point, it's because I love you. It's because I love you, and I want you to receive the blessings that, that come from serving. I will guarantee you that you will never have an experience as rewarding and satisfying as working shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Serving the Lord and serving one another are two sides of the exact same coin. They're inseparable and they're complementary. And they are vulnerable to the destructive effects of pride. Our greatest gift, our eternal salvation, would never have happened without humility. Jesus obediently and humbly, he gave his life, he gave his life for us. And, and we owe him a debt a debt that we'll never uh, be able to repay, but it's a debt that we can honor and appreciate. When we put our own pride aside and, and we serve one another, we are following his example and we're bringing glory to God. When we look at ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our own sin, we bring glory to God. When we stop relying on the world and turn our eyes to Jesus as the source of our joy, 
security, and contentment, we bring glory to our Heavenly Father. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those words, taken from the book of James, should be written on our hearts because they are truly one of the keys to the kingdom. If we aren't 100% committed to following Christ's example of humility, we will never, we will never receive the full measure of what he has planned for us. I know that it's not always easy to take the humble path. Our pride will, will convince us that, that we deserve better treatment or more respect or more attention. But let me ask you something. Has there ever, has there ever been anyone anywhere who was more deserving of every good thing than Jesus was? Has there ever been anyone who gave up as much as Jesus did? The sacrifice at the cross demands that we live in humility, but it is a demand that offers a tremendous reward for obedience, the gift of eternal life in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your sacrifice. Though we are an unworthy and sinful people, we ask for your mercy and grace. Give us your spirit, Lord, to strengthen and guide us through this life. Keep us mindful that our true significance can only be found in you. Let us find the joy in, in serving all of your people, not just our family and friends and our church, but everyone that we meet. Let your light shine through us, Lord, and bring glory to the Father. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all for being with me once again. And as always, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious unto each and every one of you. May the Lord turn his face and make it shine upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I love you all. Have a wonderful week. Do your best to stay happy, healthy, safe, and joyful. I love you all. Bye. In Romans 8.38, Paul wrote about his confidence, and we can have that same confidence that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. He wrote in there, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth can separate us. In our study on Philippians this morning, I was... I was, I was reflecting on, on the depth and thinking about just how low positionally Christ was willing to put himself on our behalf. Imagine this same Jesus through whom everything was created, set aside his glory, came into this world dirt poor, and died on a cross in an unimaginably cruel way, surrounded by thieves. Now I want to think about and reflect on that sacrifice this morning with your elements uh, in your homes today. Let's go into a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, 
thank you doesn't even begin to describe how grateful we are for what you've done for us. Father, we share in this bread this morning that represents Christ's broken body as we take it together. And Lord, we take this juice which represents his shed blood sprinkled over us that our sins could be forgiven. Father, thank you that you love us that much. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. 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 Your love makes me sing. Your love is surprising. I can feel it rising. All the joy that's growing deep inside of me. Every time I see you, all your goodness shines through And I can feel this God song rising up in me Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah Your love makes me sing it Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah Your love makes me sing changing your love is a mountain firm beneath my feet your love is a mystery how you gently lift me when i am surrounded your love carries me hallelujah 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 your love makes me sing and hallelujah Yes, you make me sing Lord, you make me sing, sing, sing How you make me sing Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah Your love makes me sing and hallelujah Hallelujah, hallelujah, your love makes me sing and hallelujah, hey, hallelujah, hallelujah, your love makes me sing and hallelujah, Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, your love makes me sing and hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallel